0: We're here to study the word, though, so let me ask you to turn to Galatians chapter 3. I've before shared my testimony about, of course, I was an atheist uh, through high school. I was going to church, but I was, didn't believe any of it. Uh, and my senior year, I reached a point where I became a theist. I started believing in God, but I didn't have any concept of the, the gospel. And I spent a couple of years where I wrestled with this fact that I knew I needed to commit my life to the Lord, but I knew what my life was like, and I thought, I can't give him this. But it was the, hard, the harder I worked to get my life together, the worse it got. And it just felt like it was going backwards, and this this whole idea of peace with God was just totally out of, out of reach. And I remember praying to God, telling him uh, repeatedly, why, why are you wasting your time on me? You're not, this is... I'm never going to be able to get this thing straightened out. Some of you may be there. And like me, the, the, you've encountered the Pitegogos of God, that is this, this cruel tyrant of disciplinarian of the law. And the Apostle Paul is going to tell us, talk to us about how the law does that to us, and how it is he actually ultimately ends up leading us to Jesus, as he did for me. So let me invite you to listen in. We're going to read verses 15 through 25 of Galatians chapter 3. Hear the word. To give a human example, or an everyday example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it's been ratified. Even if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise. But God gave it to Abraham by a promise. Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions. Until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. And it was put into place through angels by an intermediary. Now an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not, or it's stronger, it's more. No way. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin, so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Now before faith came, We were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith should be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. Let's pray. Father, we heard last week, the verse right before this, Paul said that Jesus took your curse, the curse of the law, on himself. So the blessing of Abraham would come to us Gentiles. So we would receive the promised spirit by faith. So you've given us that spirit. We need that spirit to help us understand what all this means, how it all fits together. We keep hearing Paul say the promise has primacy. And yet you gave your law for a reason. So help us understand it. And we ask you to teach us in our lives so we can use this uh, today, this week. And we pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Once again, Paul kind of puts the, the law in his place here. Uh, he's pointed out to these churches in Galatia about they, had, they, they received this experience. They received the Holy Spirit. By faith alone, he said you hadn't, didn't even have the law. You just believed Christ, so you don't need to obey the law. It's, it's Your relationship with God and God's satisfaction with you is not, not based on how you perform. It's based on what he has done for you. And then he also went on to show, we saw the last couple of weeks, how he's gone through and shown biblically uh, through several passages. Uh, that God credited righteousness. He, 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 he made Abraham acceptable to him, G- uh, just cemented in his favor based on Abraham's faith, not because of what Abraham did, not because Abraham was a good person. And today we're going to hear a bunch of images. So, so he, he talked about their experience. He talked about these passages. Today, this passage is full of a whole bunch of images uh, that teach us on the one hand how, how the promise, again, how the promise is superior to the law but then secondly, he's going to help explain, okay, so where exactly does the law fit in God's program? What's, what's the purpose of the law? So the first thing we want to look at are several images he gives about, once again, why the, why the promise has uh, primacy over the law. And The first thing he does, he gives us imagery of a will, a will or testament. The word diatheke, uh, Diathike, which is translated as covenant in this uh, translation, can be covenant. It can be uh, will or testament. You know, the New Testament, the Old Testament is about God's will, God's promised inheritance. It's more than just a covenant, and the the will or the testament He made to Abraham was had this promise, and the heir, and as Paul says here, the promise was to Abraham and his offspring or Abraham's literally Abraham and his seed now you know in in greek just like in english you can say seed for one or you can say i've got a bunch of seed or you can say i've got a bunch of seeds so you could say seed and mean But Paul is pointing out, he's trying to bring home the fact that God made it singular because it was to Abraham and to Jesus. Jesus was the one, the other one that the promise was made to. And there's this promise like we read in the proclaiming God's word, promise to bless the nations, to bless the families of people through Abraham and through his seed Jesus. And so he made this promise. The will was set. It It was set in Genesis 15, but it was also ratified. You know, a, a will's not totally locked in until there's death, and once once there's death, the will's set and it can't be changed, right? You can't change a will at that point. the The ratification that took place, we 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 see in verse twenty five, says to give a human example, even a man made covenant, a will or a testament, no one annuls it or adds to it once it's been ratified. In Genesis fifteen, where God tells, reminds Abraham, he says. You see all the stars in the sky, your, your generations are going to be like the stars in the sky. This is when Abraham had no children. and or may have, may have had Ishmael at that point, but he, and, and he believed God and God, because he believed God, he trusted God's promise to bless the nations through him, it says God considered him righteous on the basis of his faith. And immediately after that, it was Genesis 17, it was several years later that God even gave circumcision. That came later. But right after he received by faith, God had him perform the ceremony. Some of y'all were here a few weeks ago, Tim went through and talked about the ceremony. This was the ceremony that was typically done between a conquering king and a conquered king. And when the conquering king, if if he hadn't killed the conquered king, uh, he would bring the conquered king to himself, and he'd say, okay, here's the deal. It's what we call a unilateral covenant, okay? They didn't negotiate it. The conquering king, he won. He got to set the terms. And he would say, I'm going to protect you. I'm going to provide for you. I've got your back. I'll protect you from all your surrounding enemies. That's my part. Here's your part. You pay me taxes? You don't turn against me? You don't make any treaties with any other kings or any other nations? You stay faithful to me, you stay trustworthy with me. If you do, I've got your back. If you don't, and what he had to do instead of signing a piece of paper, they would take these animals and they would kill the animals, shed their blood. They would split them in half and lay them and there would be a path down the middle and the conquered king would walk down the middle of the path and that was his signature. Because his, he was declaring, if I don't keep my side of this, may I become like these animals. It was a, it was a blood oath. Uh, and so God told Abraham, when God made the promise, I'm going to deliver you. I'm going to provide for you. You're going to get everything I told you. What would happen is Abraham should have walked down the, between the animals, right? But we're told God put Abraham to sleep. and While Abraham was sleeping... He saw God, this, this, fire, this pot, fire pot, and this flaming torch, go down through the middle of the animals. And God was saying to him, those promises will come true. And if they don't, I'm gonna die. This covenant will be kept. So there was a lot of shedding of blood that was the ratification, the confirming of the will. And so what Paul is saying here when he says it's been ratified, it's been ratified. So now that it's set, you can't, the law was given 430 years later. And he said, you can't come in 430 years later and just change the will. The will, is, it's, it's a done deal. And so now, you know, it could have been. Some of the false teachers in in Galatia who'd come in behind Paul and messed these folks up. They might they might have said, "Well, but you know, circumcision was part of God's law." And Abraham, you know, you're talking about Moses, 430 years later. Abraham was circumcised. And Paul doesn't address this, but circumcision was a sign of the covenant. Okay, it was a sign of the testament. So when God gave it. It was only required because they needed it for their memory. They needed it to be able to look and to see that God was going to be faithful. But it was, the circumcision was not given at be circumcised and then God will give you the promise. It's God gave you the promise and the circumcision is just a sign, a physical way to see and remember the certainty what God said and that it's not going anywhere. So the, the first part, first thing he says to put the law beneath the promise is that it came much, much, much later. The second thing he says in verse 19, he says, Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come, or until the seed should come to whom the promise had been made. Paul shows that the promise is more important than the law because the law was temporary. It was until the seed, until Christ came. It, for, for this particular purpose, it was temporary. There are three uses of the law in the Bible. There's a word, it's a good, good theological word for you learn, one of those 50-cent words, antinomian. Anti means Against. You know, Antifa was the supposed anti-fascists, although they seem a little more fascist than the people they're against. But anyway, the, it's, it's being against. Nomos is the Greek word for law, so it's being against the law. And it's, it's a heresy, it's theological heresy. And it's, it, it's this idea that some people derived after reading maybe the first half of Galatians of thinking, oh, well, the law was there for a period, but now it's no longer necessary because Jesus is coming. Overall, as we get through this letter, especially as we get in chapter five, you'll find that's not what Paul's saying. But Paul is saying for your salvation, for you to be right with God, for you to have God's smile and His favor, the law won't help you because it, that's all about your performance, and your performance won't step up. So there, there's three uses of the law. The first use of the law is just general restraint of the culture and society. Don't murder don't steal don't lie don't commit adultery the 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 pictures i mean to the degree that a society will conform to it i mean obviously there are plenty of societies including our own who've you know new york passed a law that baby can be born and if they're born you can still kill them you know that's abrogating the uh, do not murder there's no longer any laws about uh, adultery but God's law, in general, helps restrain humanity to stay, stay out of what, what tears it down, what dehumanizes us. Second use of the law, that's just broadly and generally. The second use of the law is what we're going to look at today, is it leads you to Christ. Okay, Kurt prayed about that in his prayer this morning. The third use of the law that will come a little later in Galatians that he'll talk about is when you've been justified, when you've come to the Lord, when God has made you his, the law is beautiful as a guide for what it is to be holy. It's just don't rely on it for God's smile. You rely on what Jesus did. So the this temporariness is with regard to the second use of the law. It's only got a temporary purpose. The third image that he uses is in the second part of verse 19, going into verse 20. And this is the... This, The third reason why the law is unsatisfactory, he said the law was put into place through angels by an intermediary. It doesn't say it in Exodus 20, but later on in the Psalms and a couple different places in the Old Testament, a couple places in the New Testament, it talks about how God used the angels to give the law to Moses. And what Paul is saying is, God gave the law through and he sent it through the angels and sent it through the Moses. But when God gave the promise to Abraham, God spoke directly to Abraham. So the promise is way more important than the law. So that's just real quickly some images that he's given where, again, he's saying the promise that God gave is so much superior uh, to the law. What does this mean for us? It means that the promise for you and for me, this wasn't just for the Jews of that day, or the brand new Jewish Christians, it means if if you believe God's promise for you, that in Jesus you've received this inheritance of Abraham, the blessing of Abraham, and he's given you your spirit, it means God's locked onto you, and he's not going to let go. Just like he was saying to Abraham with that ceremony, I'm in. You're not going to lose me. There's, There's no questions. This covenant is established it's certified it is for certain and that means the same thing for you one of the things that struck me remember remember the original star wars movie now, a lot of y'all weren't even born when it came out it was really high tech back in the day and i remember the the, the, the one thing i came away with i'm obviously not a star wars nerd, because that's the only thing I can remember. The thing, the thing that always stuck with me is they would fire the projectiles and they would just go and they would weave in and out and all around and they were aimed until they hit their target. There was one just a straight shot and you could miss it. It's the projectiles were locked in and they were going to hit the target in the end. And the, that's the way God is with his love. This promise tells us that if you're in the covenant, If you put your faith in Christ, God is locked in on you, and he's not going to let you get away. He is there for you. But it still begs the question, okay, well, what's the law there for? You know, I mentioned this, this word antinomian. Paul was not against the law. He says, is the law contrary to the promises of God? Wait. Is the law... Thank you. Is the law... Then contrary to the promises of God, certainly not. In fact, it's really strong. It's like, no way, you know, may it never be. He said the law, is, the, the law is not against the promises. So what's the deal? He says, if a law had been given that could give life, you could get righteous through the law. So okay, Paul wasn't anti-law, but it couldn't give life. The promise is where you went to for, for life. That was the job of the promise. But he says in the next couple of verses, the first picture he gives here about the purpose of the law, he says, but the scripture imprisoned everything under sin. So that the promise of faith in Christ would be given to all who believe. says, Before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned under the imprisoned until the coming faith should be revealed. This, this picture of the law as a prison, it's literally this, this, the imagery that's used there is that it boxes us in and you can't get away from it. The reason, Paul's saying, the reason God gave the law was because his whole purpose of dealing with his people was going to be grace of faith in believing his promises that they needed God to deliver them and to save them and so he gave them the law to remind them how much they needed to be saved that the the, I don't know how many times Margaret and I have seen the movie Escape from Alcatraz with uh, Clint Eastwood it's one of our favorites watched another documentary about it recently you know the, the the power of Alcatraz, which I think was only like 28 years, surprisingly, it wasn't open for a real long time, but no one could escape. You were, you, were, you were boxed in there. That's why the worst of the worst were put there and often went crazy because they, they couldn't escape. The purpose of the law is that it's there until you cry uncle, or, or better yet, cry father, Abba Father, that he, he wants it. One, one writer said, law, the stern jailer, has after all been a good friend if it is reserved him for this. It prevents the sinner escaping to a futile and illusory freedom. In other words, if you get free from the law, but it's not the seed, it's not Jesus who sets you free from the law, then you're going to die. It's a fake freedom. Saying you don't, need, you don't need to have your conscience get to you. Remember, you're, you know, guilt... The feeling of guilt is recognizing I'm guilty. If you're sane, if you're healthy, emotionally, you should have some level of guilt feeling. Because we're guilty before God. All of us. There's not a person in this room, starting with me up here, who's not guilty. The beauty is we can have peace when we look at our guilt if you belong to Jesus to realize I am guilty, but he's paid for it. And the the law is there, was put there to remind them that they needed to be delivered. And it's 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 kind of what you might say, the sweet bondage of despair. Because God wanted his people during this period between when he made the promise to Abraham and when Jesus came, he gave the law through Moses because he wanted his people to be longing for God to deliver them, for longing to for God to deliver them from their selves and their, their inability. To, to keep what he was saying. And, you know, if we're honest, we hate that sense of helplessness, right? We don't like feeling desperate. We want to feel like, yeah, I can handle this. I got it under control. Just tell me what to do and I'm good. You know, give me the three steps to be a better Christian husband or better Christian wife or give me seven steps to be a better Christian father. It doesn't work. The, the law was given to box you in that, that you, you can't handle it. The second picture he gives us right after this is, so then the law was our guardian until Christ came. Now, guardian's not a real great translation, great word. Uh, Other translations use tutor, which also isn't not a real great word. The the word in Greek is pedagogos. heard of the word pedagogue or pedagogy. I remember years ago I was going to teach a Christian education class uh, at the seminary, and I was... I've always heard pedagogy, I thought it was about teaching, and I came to realize it's about teaching children. Andragogy is teaching adults. I said, wow, I never knew that, I never knew that. Pedagogy is about teaching a child. See, what would happen is, in the Roman culture, a wealthy, uh, wealthy family, when the child was born, they'd have a midwife, that would have the child be born and take care of the child up they're weaned, and then when they were, after we, they were weaned, they'd be turned over to a nanny who would take care of the child until they are about five or six. And then there are about five or six, they get turned over to the Piedagogos. The Piedagogos was 24-7, full-time, protector and trainer and disciplinarian. Tutor and guardian don't tell us at all how deep and rich and dark this word really was. When you, when you read in the history, the descriptions of the Piedagogos, They used severe corporal punishment. They were tough as nails. So when Paul says the law was our pitagogos, he means it was our harsh disciplinarian holding us in place. It was the slave who was in charge with disciplining and protecting this, this rich child. The idea was to break you down. To get you ready for life as a free adult. Impose harsh external control. So you would choose to start imposing self-control from the inside. So you didn't have to run into that. Paul. That's why the law serves. The law exposes you. It's like a mirror. It's right up in your face. and says here's who you really are. I remember my pastor in seminary talked about an episode of the Twilight Zone in which there, there was a man who, who woke up one morning and all of a sudden he had uh, obtained this ability to know what people really thought. And so as he came into work that morning, he said, good morning to the office. He was kind of the manager over this office and all these people there and they they you know, verbally they all said, good morning. But then he could hear what they were thinking inside their heads. They're thinking, man, what a jerk. I hope he stays clear of me. I hope he stays in his office all day. I want nothing to do with him. And then he got up to his uh, desk and he walked past his, what they call, this back in the 50s, called the secretary, and said, good morning. He said, good morning, Mr. Smith. And, and then he could hear inside her voice. She's saying, boy, I hope he'd, he's not going to be a bear like he is most days. And he walks in his office and he's, he's just hearing all these voices of what all the people are thinking about him. And it ain't pretty. And finally, he's about to go crazy. He goes running into the bathroom. He's leaning over the sink, you know, loosening his tie. And finally, not hearing these voices. And he looks up in the mirror, and he finds that he also has obtained the power to be able to see things as they really are. And he sees this just grotesque, hideous face, which is who he is and what he's like. And he dies. That's the law. The law shows us what we're really like. It kills you. It's like chemo that kills your body, kills the cancer to bring you life. I remember Jack Scott was a missionary to Korea, later became the first Bible teacher at Reformed Theological Seminary, and then later at Bellhaven College, and he was retired, and he was at the church that Tim and I were at in Mississippi, and he taught our senior adults. And when I first arrived, I arrived January 1st, and in the middle of January at that church, we always, during the Sunday school hour, our, our women's, uh, women in the church ministry would always have a, a luncheon once a year to uh, put their new officers into place and talk about the women's ministry. And so all the men because all the women were gone, would come and have Sunday school class together. And we were using, Dr. Scott had actually written a seven-year curriculum that took you through the entire Bible. I mean, it's like a set of commentaries. It was amazing that he had written. And the the head of our CE came to me, because I was the new associate pastor. He said, I hope you don't mind, but I asked Dr. Scott if he would teach that lesson. Well, the lesson for that day was going to be the book of Leviticus in one week. And I said, let him at it. That's great. (laughs) Bless his heart. Uh, And to this day, it grieves me that I did not record that lesson because it was one of the most amazing things I've ever heard. And basically what he did was he he, he took the book of Leviticus and Psalm 51 back to back, and he showed how The book of Leviticus is about the law, particularly about the sacrifices. And he said, what this tells you is if the the people of Israel were faithful in doing everything God said in the book of Leviticus and all these different kinds of sacrifices that would have been required, they would have been hip deep in blood 24-7. The book of Leviticus was saying, you don't even have the capacity to pay for all your sins. Let alone to obey the law this is so far beyond your ability to do you need provision on your behalf see the law is preparatory that's why it says in the last verse in our passage now that faith has come we're no longer under this paedagogos you know martin luther said god wounds in order to heal he kills us in order to make us alive and paul is showing here that during the Old Testament period, he gave them his law to get them ready for the Messiah. They would just be so desperate when he came. Now, I want you to hear this. God was not saying they were saved through the law in the Old Testament. If you hear that, and you will hear that, hopefully now you won't hear that around here, but that sometimes people misunderstand. They think, oh, the Old Testament was, was all about living according to the law. That's not what it was at all. In fact, in, in Exodus 20, right before he gives, starts giving the law, he gives the 10 commandments. The first thing God says is, I'm Yahweh, your God, who delivered you out of your slavery in Egypt. In other words, you're in. We're in relationship. I'm your God. Okay, we're in relationship. Here's what it's going to look like. The law didn't get them into relationship. The law was because they were already in relationship. But to remind them how desperate it was. But not only that, he didn't just start Exodus 20 like that. Right after he gives the Ten Commandments at the end of Exodus 20, you know the first thing he told them to do after that? He gave them instructions how to build an altar. You think God had high expectations for their performance? He required perfection. But as soon as he gave him the Ten Commandments, he says, and and here's how you're going to have to clean up afterwards. Because you're not going to do so hot. Because you can't do it. It's still true for us. It wasn't just for Israel in that time. That you, you and I don't like the feeling of being broken, of being pitiful of needing charity, needing a handout. But that's grace. And the, it wasn't just for Israel from 1500 B.C. until 30 A.D. that they needed the law to drive them to Christ. Ever since, we still need the law to drive us to the gospel. But it, you know, my problem that I talked about at the very beginning was I thought I need to get myself good enough so I can give myself to the Lord. And God was going to have none of that. And there was no change in my life other than the fact I started paying attention in church and I wanted to do it right. But I, I couldn't do it right. In fact, I, I sank way deeper after I started really wanting to do it right. And it wasn't until I finally reached the point, God took me basically with his law and he put the mirror in front of me that he wanted me to come to him totally based on his mercy. And I finally had to say, God... I keep giving you my life and taking it back, and giving you my life and taking it back, and this time I'm not even giving it to you. You just got to take it away because I can't do it. You're gonna, have, you're the one's gonna have to change me. And it's kind of like he said, "Okay, now we can talk." I didn't hear that verbally, but if, if this is being recorded for Presbyterian, but but it doesn't just stop there. The, the, the law to point us to Jesus isn't for just for the first time. It's for every single day. See, God wants to lovingly, wisely, protectively, he just wants to suck the wind out of your sails for thinking that, that you can provide a record that will make you acceptable to God on any day. He doesn't want to keep you from living for him and from striving to be holy. But he never wants you to think you can stand on that. I mean, God, you know, we read, Paul said early in this chapter, he's put the spirit in your heart. He's, he's going to bring change, but you're never going to have enough change to start patting yourself on the back or start puffing up your chest, saying, I'm good with God. This is really hard. Some, some of y'all, I know. From all, all the years I've been pastoring, some of y'all, you've got this picture in your mind that you just feel like you're climbing this hill, climbing this hill, and you're thinking, sooner or later, I'm going to finally crest this hill, and it's not going to be so hard, and I won't have to constantly, when I'm coming to God, say, God, please forgive me for this. God, please forgive me for this. God wants you to keep looking at his law, because he wants to shatter that dream, because that ain't happening. Now, you may get pressed for a little while, because that's what your hope has been. You've been thinking that day's going to come. And he says, no. You're a charity case every day for the rest of your life. And that ends up becoming so much freedom. Because you quit being so surprised by your sin. And you quit being so surprised by other people's sin. When you got people in your family sin against you. Instead of just raising up this rage, it's like, well, there we go again. It doesn't mean that we don't seek to become holy. It doesn't mean we don't talk to each other. But we, we can lose some of the acid. It brings grace into how we deal with our hearts and it gives grace to how we deal with one another. My pastor in seminary that I mentioned one time, he has an illustration of this. I had him come down to do a singles conference uh, at the church I was at in Mississippi. And he stayed with Margaret and I for a couple days afterwards because he was gonna teach at the seminary in town. Uh, for a few days and I I invited him to come to a Bible study morning Bible study I had and as we were sitting there one of the fellows turned to him and this guy had been at the retreat and he said I just got to ask you a question he said I've been depressed ever since I left the retreat because Jack was you know he was calling us out and he said you know you need to have a heart for the Lord and you got to have boldness to talk to people about Jesus and he was you know putting us on us you know New Testament law you know what Jesus calls us to do and this guy was just broken, and, and you gotta understand, this guy was about 6'4", 250. He'd been a linebacker at Georgia Tech when they won this national title in uh, 88, 89. And uh, so he, he was a dude. He was a uh, commercial real estate guy, but he also had a, just a sweet, humble heart. And he said, he said I've just been so depressed. What, 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 do I, what do I do? And I'll never forget, it was so informative. To me, as a pastor, to learn this. Jack looked at him with this little smile and he said, "He said, well, we'll pray for you. And maybe, maybe the Lord will be kind and, and let you get a little more depressed so you go to Jesus. That doesn't sound real pastoral, does it? But his point was, You're asking me, what can I do so I can feel good about myself and not be depressed? And Jack was saying, You're not desperate enough as a Christian. You still think you can fix yourself. Run to Jesus. That's what he's inviting us to do. Let's pray. Father, all of us are like Mike, my friend, who who, we want to fix ourselves. Some of us before, we're, we're in the kingdom, but all of us even after we're in the kingdom. We just keep falling into that delusion that we can fix it we thank you that you have fixed it you've given us your spirit you've declared us righteous in your son Jesus and it's not that you don't aren't going to call effort from us but you don't want us to despair you want us to have joy and peace in our failure as we seek striving to obediently love you and serve you and love others uh, that you use us not because we're good, not because we're skillful. You, you, you use messes. Because that's who we are and that's all you have to work with. And so we thank you that we can rest in Jesus. Help us to go there. To Help us believe that you take us that way. And that we can just keep coming day after day after day. Because that's our only option. And we ask it in his name. Amen.